So I'll send you this video. It's a seven minute long video talking about why you see this chair everywhere you go. Um, I want to show you two things first. One is our LMS, uh, which as I mentioned in my email, I'm not sending you emails about, but it's all there nicely organized. So this is lecture one, this is lecture two or not lecture one because hooks and habits are two lectures. This is the second one. Um, and so everything you have, uh, everything you want is in here. This is the reading. Uh, this is the reading. These are the slides. Uh, I've put the slides also in a PDF format because PowerPoint is terrible course outline. And then every book that I share with you excerpts from, uh, I'm also uploading the full thing if you want to look at other chapters. Uh, useful if you want to uh, write your paper or your project and uh, it's all there. Um, the other thing I want to show you is some of the Slack organization. Um, where did it go? Uh, we have some nice memes coming and I particularly enjoy silly ones like these. I'm a sucker for really bad puns, uh, and this does it for me. Um, the sessions channel is just this one comment. Um, I have uh, put the hosting schedule here if you want to check. Our YouTube playlist links to the podcast, lecture summaries, which is everyone's one page. So if you click this, uh, you come across this folder here. So this is uh, the summary that Lela made for us. Um, so you can just refer to these. And then the last section here is how to build evil products. So when you're looking at your project, uh, you can just refer to this section as well. Um, and I'm also putting in uh, these links here. So uh, these are all the videos, uh, YouTube links, and then the notes, this section, this note is this particular file that I just showed you. So all nicely organized, everything in one place. What I might also do is upload the readings for the week in this channel and then remove them. So you don't have to scroll through the whole thing to find uh, the relevant stuff. Uh, oh, and we have our in-class playlist. This is Spotify and then we this updating YouTube as we go along. Uh, what else did I want to show you? Um, Actually, let I forgot to share audio, so we're back here. Again, it's amazing why it's just one simple option. Yes, I want to share my audio, uh, but nope, I have to re-host this every time. Uh, I want to start by showing a, a video. Uh, what is that video? What was it called? And then, 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 then. All right, yep. Uh, the beauty of the internet is that I don't have to make up examples. It's, they're all there and I just have to Google it just like you guys and pick from whatever comes up on YouTube. So watch this. Oh, damn, that's another file. I have to reboot again. Hey Dwight, do you want an Altoid? What do you think? In school, we learned about this scientist who trained dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell by feeding them whenever a bell rang. So for the past couple weeks, I've been conducting a similar experiment. Dwight, one Altoid. Okay. Altoid? Sure. And Dwight?
What are you doing? I... What? I don't know. I... Well, my mouth tastes so bad all of a sudden. Oh. Uh, that is an example. Today's lecture. Uh, okay. And hold on. I'm having audio problems. <sighs> okay. Are you able to hear me more clearly now or the same as before? Great. Oh, wow. Now I've... <laughs> Now I've lost connection to my keyboard. Uh, okay. I hate bad technology. I've told you that before. Uh, and this is an example of it. Um, okay, I don't think I need my keyboard as such, but hopefully it connects somewhere down the line. All right, so um, the reason why we're starting with the uh, Classical conditioning is because the first chapter that I asked you to read is about variable rewards, which is an example of operant conditioning. So in psychology, we have uh, learning theory. And uh, ah, see, I have my notes down here, and my notes remind me that I have to start uh, with, a, with a screen share because I have lecture slides for I'm, I'm very disoriented today, as you can see. Uh, okay. So now, um, today we're going to try something experimental. Uh, I discovered that Zoom has an option for a green screen. And uh, if you've ever seen how movies are made, uh, there's a bright green screen there that you can superimpose things on. And while I don't have a green screen, I do have a blue screen, which is my wall behind me. So I discovered I can actually have virtual backgrounds come up like this. Um, and there's also moving videos that they have here. It looks pretty rad. But what I'm going to use this for is to put up my slides. And it's going to look really silly. Um, but we like to experiment here in this class. So let's see how this shows up. All right. Uh, so th this looks way worse than I thought it would. Um, but what this allows me to do is to move around. So I'm going to, I have my uh, notes here on a tiny paper. And um, just like an actual lecture, I will walk around. So I'm pushing my screen here. And uh, I have actually never given a lecture like this before, but you can see that I can, we can have some sense of normalcy here because I can use my hands, I can walk around, I can point to the wall, which is now a projector. Uh, and you can see I've made some test slides here because uh, this is going to take a while to get used to. Um, so that's how it looks. If it works, then maybe I can remove my posters and can have all of this prime real estate as well. Um, if I wear same shirt as the back. So uh, how would I see your comments? Excellent, that's why we have a TA. So uh, I can still read your comments from this distance. If I move a little further back, I can't. Um, 
I've never done this, like I said, so we're all going to find out how I do things as we go along. Um, the problem with that is that I can't see raised hands either. So what I would like Ali to do is to just uh, unmute yourself and jump in whenever you feel like you want to. Uh, and then uh, in the comments, maybe you can read some of the relevant comments for me. Uh, and if there's like a good question, then I can stop and answer. So I'm gonna do this for like the next 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, again, just stop me when there's a question, uh, but if it's in the chat, then uh, you know, just say it out loud. Um, I also okay. have a wireless mouse, so that makes it easier to actually click through the slides except that I have to be very precise. Uh, but that's our motto for this class. If you don't try stuff like this, you'll never know what might happen. Again, I never know, I won't know what might happen. So these are my two experimental slides. Um, and now we move on to the actual slides, which is a nicer color than that ugly green one. Uh, I still have to find out which color works best, but I think this is uh, kata enough to get your attention uh, and we're all here for attention. So, um, all right, tiny notes, mouse in hand. Let's do this for the next 15 odd minutes. So we are going to start with um, learning theories and psychology. What I just showed you was an example of classical conditioning. Um, what is classical conditioning? Uh, I'm going to be doing this more verbally because I don't want to put too much on the slides. The slides are just here uh, for a reference of what we're talking about. Uh, so classical conditioning and operant conditioning are two theories, not necessarily competing theories, but they both explain why we learn certain behaviors and do certain things. Um, in classical conditioning, you have a stimulus and you have a response. Um, for those of you who've taken HP, this is going to be a little repetitive, um, but for our CS friends here, I'll just briefly skim over this. Uh, I won't go too deep into uh, what this is. So um, there's a stimulus and there's a response. What is a stimulus? What is a response? In the video I showed you, the stimulus was the sound of the computer shutting down and the response or the paired response was uh, Jim giving that mint Altoid, I don't know what that thing was, to Dwight. Uh, this idea comes from uh, a certain gentleman called Mr. Pavlov, uh, who very famously trained his dogs to salivate every time he rang a bell. How he managed to do that was to give them food, but each time he gave them food, he rang a bell. So there's a bell, dun, 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 and then he gives them food. And he does that over and over and over again, repeatedly until the dogs learn to associate the bell with the arrival of food. And so at some point he rings the bell, but there's no food. Now the dog having heard the bell responds by salivating because he's expecting the food. So the bell is the stimulus here that's been paired with the response, the involuntary response of salivating because he, the dog expects the food to be coming in any second. Um, we can apply that to uh, human behavior as well. So maybe you're watching TV and the commercial comes on and that's your cue for you to go into the kitchen and look for snacks. So every time there's a commercial, snacks, commercial, snacks. 
Um, and so you sort of like pair one thing with the other. Uh, are there other examples of classical conditioning? I'm trying to think of uh, one. So uh, again, every time one thing follows another, um, something. I remember one example, I actually accidentally conditioned myself to be like a Pavlovian dog. Um, what happened was, this was maybe like 10, 15 years ago, um, when newspapers were still a thing. Uh, I used to read the newspaper every day uh, with my lunch. And um, when I say read the newspaper, I meant specifically read the sports page. And the sports page only ever had uh, cricket stories. So headlines from cricket and no other sport. So every time I had lunch, I read news on cricket. And that sort of like repeated for days and weeks and months and years uh, to a point that uh, if I ever read an article on cricket on the internet, I started salivating because the words and players and terms uh, that they were using were the same as the ones I was reading while I was eating. Um, that's classical conditioning, but what we are really here for is operant conditioning, um, which is using rewards or punishments to increase or decrease our target behavior. Now, how this is different from uh, classical conditioning is uh, that with classical conditioning, there's no reward, there's no target behavior that you want to increase or decrease. It's just pairing a stimulus with a response. So the bell doesn't serve as a reward for the dog. Um, in comparison here, um, the example I believe in the reading was about pigeons. So uh, be a skinner, I think, yes. So if Pavlov is associated with classical conditioning, be a skinner is the guy that's associated with operant conditioning. And what he basically did was he put pigeons in a pigeon box. Uh, I think we I showed a video last time, maybe I'll do that here again. And there was a lever in that box. Now, each time the pigeon um, pecked at that lever, uh, reward came in the form of a food pellet. Now, food is a reward for the pigeon in this case. Um, and so the pigeon learns to associate that lever with a reward. Each time I peck, there's food, peck, food. So uh, the more the pigeon pecks, the more food the pigeon gets, and therefore the more reward the pigeon gets for pecking that uh, lever. And so you, if you wanted to, to, uh, a pigeon to peck the lever more often, you want to give the rewards that come from that peck more often. And same with punishments. Like if you uh, punish someone for doing a behavior, then they're less likely to repeat that behavior. So with operant conditioning, you're trying to increase or decrease a certain behavior by giving rewards or punishments. Sounds fairly intuitive, and it is. Um, uh, sir, Lena gave an example. An so, example could be my parent. parent. Uh, you're getting cut out. I see you're muted. I can see that from here. Uh, Lena gave an example that uh, my parent asking for food every time they see my brother. Mm -hmm. So that can be exa an example of classical conditioning. Absolutely. The appearance of the brother is the stimulus and the response is asking for food. Uh, that's happened to me as well. Uh, during the summer, I, I was going to Lums again, as I said, for a walk or a jog. And there's cats all around. And uh, with Dr. Rashid, he has a 
a whole bag of cat treats and he goes around giving all the cats in the cricket ground their food. And so they learn to associate him with food, but also I was with him. So by extension, I was also associated with food. And each time I appeared on my own, the cats came running to me expecting food because they knew that these two guys mean food. But then they slowly started to learn that no, only the, the big tall guy has food and the smaller guy doesn't. Uh, and so that's like reverse conditioning or like unconditioning. Um, so the whole point uh, when we're talking about rewards, and this is where we jump into the reading, is that rewards can be fixed or variable. Uh, there's actually four types, uh, but we're going to simplify them into just fixed and variable. Fixed rewards. Oh, I see that the door sort of blocks that. I can't remove the door, but I can remove the posters for next time. Uh, but this, you can tell, just says rewards. I guess if I open the door, the rest of the text isn't going to pop out. Um, fixed rewards and variable rewards. Um, when we say fixed rewards, what we mean to say is each time the target behavior happens, we give the pigeon a reward. And with variable rewards, you only give that reward, that food credit, some of the time. Um, and so you would expect that if I get a reward every single time I do an action, I would be more likely to do that action compared to if I only got it some of the time. But what uh, Skinner's research found was that it's actually the variable rewards that get the pigeons to do more of the action because they don't know when the next reward is coming. So they'll keep pecking over and over and over and over and over again um, and until they get that reward. And obviously it, it's uh, not a zero or one, it's on a scale. If you give the reward too few times uh, or less frequently, uh, then you're not likely to do that behavior. But I think in the reading itself, between 50 to 60 or 70% of the time, if you give the reward, they're more likely uh, to repeat that behavior compared to if you did it 100% of the time. Um, and so when we bring this into the context of technology and social media, the rewards that we are getting um, are actually, actually, I see a couple of raised hands, so go ahead. Sabi, I think, is the one. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, so like, I don't know if this is a correct example, but like, uh, like in our title, they used to be Pokemon cards. So like on the cover, it always used to say, it used to contain this card, this card. You, you have to keep buying it, buying it, because you would never show that, uh, would like, they, would the actual card be in that pack or not? So not, you couldn't always get the card you wanted, but mm -hmm. it did, you know, like promote a behavior that you have to keep buying it. I don't know if right. that's a correct example. No, I think we're getting uh, in the in the same ballpark. If you got uh, no cards that were that you expected, then you're less likely to buy it. And if you got the cards you wanted every single time, then it's not as repetitive a behavior. If you only get it some of the time, there's an element of mystery, there's an element of luck. And so you play that uh, buy those cards more often. And that's how they're linking this to gambling and slot machines. Uh, the thrill of that reward when you're not sure whether or not the next roll of the dice or the next pull of the lever yeah, is going was, to get you the rewards. Like it was in, also mentioned that you, it's also like you don't know exactly when it's going to happen and that has its own you know, addiction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Etazaz, go ahead. Uh, 
Right. And I often wonder if uh, this can be applied to children in the sense that uh, in most parenting demands, you can't fulfill all of the children's demands, but also you don't always reject all of them. So you're only giving them the reward of that demand, fulfilling that demand some of the time. So you're probably inadvertently conditioning them to throw a tantrum more often because you're not rewarding it uh, every single time. Um, all right, so uh, when we're talking about dopamine here, uh, did he mention dopamine? I think he mentioned dopamine in the reading. So dopamine is a chemical in the brain that activates the pleasure center. Um, what that means is that every time there's something that you enjoy doing, good food, sex, um, even things like listening to good music, um, having a, receiving social validation, uh, you get that tiny hit of dopamine that activates the pleasure center. Um, other examples of dopamine hits, uh, smells, the uh, smell of rain. Um, if you've ever not used your phone for 12 hours or 15 hours, and then you get, when you open it the next time and you see who's messaged you and what all those notifications are, there's that tiny hit of dopamine, that jump in excitement. If you're Crush texts you back. That's a tiny hit of dopamine. Ali? Uh, Sakina says smell of biryani. Bisma uh, says cute animals. I'm sure that gives Sakina a reward, but uh, not me. I'm sorry. Like you'll, I already mentioned, uh, I, I didn't mention it. You mentioned it. I don't like biryani. So uh, rewards and dopamine hits are different for different people, of course. Um, and that actually raises a good point, which is uh, that there's also personal relevancy involved in the rewards. So uh, we mentioned uh, under the action section last time, personal relevancy leads to more uh, uh, a greater chance of getting someone to do an action. Uh, rewards are linked to personal relevancy for that person. If I am not hungry, then food is not going to act as a, a reward for me. Um, if you offer me something uh, that I'm not particularly interested in, like tea, for instance, it's not going to do it for me, but it will for other people. So um, even in the reading, he mentions that uh, variable rewards are not a free pass. It's not, let's just sprinkle variable rewards everywhere. They also have to be irrelevant to the product you're making. Um, and the biggest example in the reading was the like button. So sometimes you get 100 likes on your status. Other times you get 10 likes on your status and that's variability there. You don't know what's going to happen each time you post something. And so you're more likely to post more frequently and start, sort of start to develop these rules or uh, about what gets more likes, which is interesting because um, I think it's not as unpredictable. I think you can predict what posts are going to do well now. So if, if you're on Instagram, for instance, um, 
डीएसएलआर से पिक्चर खिंची हो पीछे सनलाइट आ रही हो मेकअप किया हुआ तैयार हुए हुए हैं सारे वेरिंग योर बेस्ट सूट एंड यू हैव अ कैप्शन दैट्स अपलिफ्टिंग एंड हैप्पी एंड व्हाटएवर यू नो इट्स गोइंग टू गेट लाइक्स एंड लॉट्स ऑफ लाइक्स देयर इज नो वेरिएबिलिटी अबाउट दैट सो यू सॉर्ट ऑफ लाइक कन्वर्जिंग इनटू इफ आई टिक दीस बॉक्सेस एंड पिक दीस इंग्रेडिएंट्स आई विल फॉर श्योर गेट अ रिवॉर्ड um in the form of social validation um which i think i i don't know the answer to this but i think it's interesting why that leads us to post more often because it is a fixed reward if you know what you're doing um ali do you have your hand raised yes uh lala has a story to share i love stories go ahead um it's not exactly a story but recently on instagram i asked my friends how they get their so, uh, their dopamine hits mm-hmm. what were the so answers so way person yeah i have the answers actually exciting um so, some of them were just uh, jokes but uh, tv shows um body massage music cat uh what is this netflix youtube social relationships uh watching football gym songs gaming bothering friends chat again or food chocolate or yeah so these were some of the answers i wonder if all the comfort foods you guys listed do it for you in in terms of dopamine hits uh Huh. that's a lot of variability but uh, yeah these are all nice things pleasurable things that we enjoy doing um is also the concept of dopamine fasting which has taken over silicon valley and then you see articles about it which is to deliberately deprive of yourself of pleasure or dopamine uh, for a certain period of time um and the idea behind it is that we're getting little doses of dopamine uh, throughout the day in the form of social media in the form of technology uh and people who are practicing dopamine fasting say that we want to uh sort of increase the uh how do i phrase this increase the effectiveness the of potency. those rewards the potency or the yep effectiveness mm-hmm. uh by refraining from getting dopamine uh hits like throughout the day so maybe they'll turn off the phone for the entire day they'll only eat bland food they want to do any of the things they enjoy doing so like sensory deprivation uh, and so the next time they do do the things that uh, excite them or give them pleasure it's a it's a stronger feeling it's more uh, and they're more appreciative of it um so social media fasting in a way is also dopamine fasting um what we have next is feedback which is where i jumped into a different book um and uh so i attended uh, the uh, ali you have your hands raised or is it from or you have i think it's from before uh-huh. yeah yeah uh, yeah so uh, i attended the uh, hci class yesterday for those of you who are cs majors cs seniors i think there's i saw a bunch of people uh, from this class there and uh, dr suleiman was talking about feedback and i thought it was interesting how uh, our courses sort of like meet in the middle at some point uh mujhe yahan se bhi nazar aa raha hai minhal has said me i think that's what she said uh so um 
the idea with feedback is that you want to tell your users the consequences of their actions. And I say users because we're talking about tech, but feedback is all around us. It's very, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with technology necessarily. So feedback could be, um, is there something I can use here? So uh, if I turn on the lights and I press the button, the feedback for me is the click that the button was pressed and the light turning on, which is the visual, uh, there's visual feedback and the light turning on, there's uh, physical feedback in the button uh, being clicked. Uh, and the idea is that you want to tell people that what they did happened or what they didn't happen. So uh, if something was a success or a failure, uh, you're getting that information so you can choose your next action. Um, and I'll give examples of that. Uh, do I have examples of that here? Sounds, smells, so... Um, Examples of feedback. This is where I pass it on to you guys. Quite literally anything. So if you hover your mouse over a button on your computer, you'll see that it changes color. And that's giving you feedback that your mouse is indeed where you want it to be. And when you click it, it's uh, going to click. Um, if you click on a URL in on a web page, the cursor changes from a pointy arrow to a finger. And that's giving you feedback that this is, when you click this, something else is going to open up. Mahir, go ahead. Um, the typing voice, when you keep it, like the phone ke keep it, when you type it, there's like tuck, tuck, tuck. So that mm -hmm. would be feedback. <laughs> I wonder if my keyboard works now. It doesn't, we're going to have problems in this class. Maybe I'll ask you to type things and then I can copy paste them on my own computer to get around. Uh, so yeah, it sounds, sight, smells, anything can be feedback. What happens when you don't get feedback is you're not sure if the thing happened or not. And so you might just abandon that thing entirely or you might do it again and then you're doing it twice. So if, if there's delayed feedback, for instance, you press a button, nothing happens. You press it two or three times and then all three times, like it, you record three presses. So there's delayed feedback, which is also bad. Um, the reason why we I bring feedback here is because we're talking about positive feedback here. And when we say positive feedback, I mean positive social feedback. When you post on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, you're getting the likes and the hearts. Um, and that's giving you feedback that what you said, what you posted is good content. And so you're more likely to do that behavior because you're getting that feedback. You're also getting it immediately. There's no delay, you post it. And within a few seconds, all the likes start rolling in. So you're getting it instantly and you get all of it is positive. I don't think it's a coincidence. There's no like button, uh, no dislike button on Facebook, no dislike button on Instagram. Um, and also if you think about it on Instagram, there's, if you double tap, it hearts the picture, but if you double tap again, it doesn't unheart it. So they make it harder to take away the positive feedback that you're already giving. Um, and so the more positive feedback we get as a form of a reward for doing the actions that we did online, the more likely we are to repeat that behavior. Um, also, I will show you... uh, when you press the like button, there's a pop sound. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that can also be a feedback. It is, and uh, it's called, they're called micro interactions in that those tiny animations, the little things on Spotify, uh, they've added animations 
previously if you wanted to uh, like something there was a heart but now when you press that heart there's like small confetti or smaller hearts just doing this like moving out uh, and that's just like another example of more positive feedback where it, it shouldn't be just to get you to like more and more and more songs and the more songs you like the more likely you are to return to spotify to listen to those songs because now you've invested in spotify which is what we're going to come to next uh, let me show you some examples of feedback. Uh, I don't have so this one says the sound when you uh, when someone match matches you on Tinder. That can also be feedback. I wouldn't know for two reasons. One is I don't use Tinder, and the other is that I always always have my phone on silent, so I don't know what sound design is doing these days. Uh, how was that experience? I still have a couple of slides, but uh, give me feedback on this experimental new method that we have been using. Okay, uh, so see, all of this is positive feedback. I don't think I'd be getting negative feedback here uh, because people aren't going to uh, there's going to be a bandwagon effect. Two people said something positive, everyone will say something positive and there's no space for negative feedback here. Uh, I will get you guys to um, by sending anonymous feedback forms. Uh, stay tuned for those. Uh, but if you're brave enough to, uh, oh yeah, Moeed does that. PM with your negative, or just PM me uh, your negative feedback. I have tried, not completely there, but I have tried to train myself to be more accepting of negative feedback. Chupti sabko hai, but there's value in getting over the initial, uh, no, this is wrong, no, tumhe kya pata, and just trying to understand why people are saying what they're saying. Uh, it's their opinions, their perspectives. There's no point in you telling them why their feelings or why their feedback is wrong. Uh, defensive mode misari chale aate. It's a it's a muscle that you have to work on. Um, so this is a video I made of my niece last year. She's two in this video, and uh, I want you to point out. Let me pull up the chat. Why she's pressing? Why she's doing what she's doing? Uh, the sound, there's sound, there's animation, there's a, let me play it again, there's lots going on here. So first you have the visual, which is the shutter flashing. Yes, uh, there's the sound, of course. Uh, there's also haptic feedback. Uh, I can't demonstrate it, but when you press the shutter button, uh, there's a slight vibration. The feedback is immediate. Uh, so it's not you know, taking a picture after 30 seconds, it's doing it instantly. Uh, 
And there's also another form of feedback here, which is when my mom passes by and you know she talks to her for five seconds in a tone that uh, attracts her and it's positive and welcoming. Uh, she's getting that feeling that what she's doing is a good thing. If she had scolded her, she might stop what she's doing because she's getting negative feedback. So she's not getting negative feedback here. She's not getting neutral feedback here. She's getting positive feedback. And that's why she has that smile on her face as well. She stops what she's doing for a few seconds and then she continues doing it again. And uh, this is like a short video, but I ended up with like 150 pictures in my phone. The thing with kids is they're, uh, they don't, you know, their tolerance for repetitiveness is much higher than for adults. So they'll keep on doing the same things over and over and over and over and over again, which is why videos like Baby Shark uh, have so many views. They can listen to those songs for like years and years. Ali, you have your hand up. Uh, so there's this channel on YouTube called Coco Melon. Mm -hmm. And it's about to become the second largest YouTube channel on the platform. And it's uh, it has almost crossed around 100 million views. It's about nursery rhymes and kids stuff. Mm -hmm. and all I that. think YouTube had to do something about the views because, uh, you know, views on kids uh, videos tend to be like astronomical because they keep repeating, they keep replaying the same video over and over uh, as compared to adults. Uh, yeah, their uh, top videos have over a billion views, mm -hmm. around 4 billion views and counting. 4 billion views, okay. I have lost my keyboard, I just remembered. I have a new one coming in. Uh, wow, such a handicap. Uh, let me show you another video because I obviously can't type anything. Uh, and this is, again, her a few days later. Uh, oh, okay. That's not nice. Uh, we have a Google Home in our house. And uh, whenever you say the trigger word, which is okay, Google, um, it sort of lights up, and this is her trying to activate it. I want to remind you, she in this video, she doesn't know how to speak yet. So uh, she's trying her best. Again, look for the rewards that she's getting. Okay, Google, play nursery rhymes. Would you like that to play on bedroom TV? Yes. All right, here's a Spotify playlist called This is the Nursery Rhymes. Playing on bedroom TV. Uh, yes, there's sounds, 
there's the visual of the thing lighting up here. Uh, and also it's variable, very good Minel, because it obviously doesn't recognize her doing it. Uh, but when I speak, it lights up and she thinks it's her who's and doing that, uh, who's making that happen. So, um, you know, she tries to do it more often. Uh, Ali, is that hand from the previous time or do you have something? Okay. Uh, from the okay, uh, let me show you one last video. Uh, I'm particularly fascinated with how kids use technology because uh, uh, they're, they're some of the fastest learners. They don't need instructions or manuals. They just mess around and do it again. This is uh, the same scenario, but I think literally three days later. Um, and uh, here it okay, is. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round. I see ya ya. I see ya ya. I see ya ya. Round and round, round and round. I see ya The wipers on the bus go swish, 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 swish. Okay, Google. So the, the thing I want to show you with this video is the frequency with which she's saying the trigger word compared to the first time around. Uh, he's doing it much more frequently and uh, for much longer because she's come to associate the reward, uh, the variable reward uh, with saying the trigger word. Um, and that's a kid who doesn't know what's happening. So you don't have to understand what's going on in order to for this to work. It's it's uh, subconscious. It's uh, you know it it can happen the way it happened with Jim and Dwight, where you don't know what's happening. And the the key thing here is that it can be controlled by people who are designing for things like these. Uh, let us take a break here. I let me fix my keyboard during this break. If you hear smashing sounds, uh, ignore those. And we shall resume after five or six minutes and take it from there. So I'll send you like things like these every now and then. Uh, all right. So uh, the last part of the reading was on investment. And essentially what that is, is that once you're into something, it's really hard to get out of it. It sort of reminds us of something uh, that we did in the last week, which is the sunk cost fallacy or uh, the escalation of commitment. Um, the more you get into something, the harder it, it is to pull back out of it. And so with investment, what products are trying to get you to do is to uh, add some value to it by yourself. Um, what that does is once you're into it, once you've invested a little bit of time or money or resources or emotions or curation into that product, it's harder for you to switch to something else. And as an example, um, you have WhatsApp and there's a competing app called Telegram. If I ask you to switch to Telegram, how hard is that for you to do? I would imagine pretty hard because all of your previous chats are on WhatsApp, everyone uh, who you talk to is on WhatsApp. Um, you have all your media and documents and links, your groups on there. And so the switching cost, that's the word we use to describe 
how costly it is to switch to something else uh, and not necessarily monetarily. You can see there's no monetary cost associated with switching from WhatsApp to uh, Telegram, but there's still a cost that is preventing you from switching. Uh, and the reason for that is you've invested uh, all of your time and resources into making WhatsApp what it is. If you lost your data magically one day, not magically, I think hard drive failures and like phone toot happens a lot, uh, you and there's no backup, you lose all of that investment. And so you now you're more likely to switch to something else. It happens with phones, by the way. Um, and so uh, in the reading, he mentions three phenomena. Uh, one is the IKEA effect, which is that when you've built something yourself, uh, you ascribe a greater value to that because you made a The TV table I have down here, you can't see the table, but there's a TV, it's sitting on a table. I built that myself and uh, it's pretty old now and I want to change it, but I have some emotional attachment to it because I went out there, I did my research, I bought it, I built it uh, and now it's there. And I'm like, okay, and the process so, is so unappealing that uh, I'm still using it. And you know, it's been years since I decided it's time to change it. Um, and so how that applies to technology is that um, when you build something yourself and by build, we can think about building a follower list on Twitter or building a playlist on Spotify. Visma mentions uh, ask.fm as well. Um, if you're an influencer, again, building followers on Instagram, uh, building your entire timeline or your feed, uh, you're doing that and so, Compared to if that was handed to you, let's say Spotify says, here's a playlist we made for you. And then in comparison, there's a playlist that I made for myself. I'm more likely to value that playlist that I made myself because I made it. And so if I'm investing my time in building that thing in that product, I'm more likely to use it for longer than if the product pushes uh, those things to me and says, here, we made something for you. Um, the second thing uh, out of the three is consistency with past behavior. Uh, and we sort of mentioned that again in the MAO model where you want to be consistent with your past uh, behaviors and values, uh, and you're more likely to do the action of what I'm asking you to do is consistent with what you already believe in. And I love the example that he gave, which was uh, that with one group, they asked them to place a sign in their garden that said drive carefully. And with the other group, and it was a pretty large sign. Uh, and with the other group, they also asked them to do the same thing. Uh, and one group was more likely to accept doing that than the other. The only difference was that in the group that was more likely to place that large sign uh, saying drive carefully in their garden, uh, a few weeks prior, they'd been given a much smaller sign, a much less obtrusive sign to place that said, again, something along the lines of drive carefully. So when you ask people to do a tiny little thing first, before you ask them to do a much larger thing that requires more of their investment, they're more likely to do it by because they say, well, we did the same thing before, uh, so we might as well do the same thing again. Ali. So people tend to avoid change or resist change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a word for that in psychology. I'm, I'm, I'm 
blanking out on it, but uh, something cha change aversion, I think is the word. Uh, and that's part of this, absolutely. Uh, but one of the things that we can learn from um, consistency with past behavior and asking people to do a to uh, do a small thing before you ask them to do a larger thing is the way you onboard people. So when you join Facebook or Instagram or any other app, even Slack, if you ask people to, you know, ye bhi enter karo, bhi upload karo, naam bhi website bhi dalo, ye bhi karo, ye bhi verify karo. That's a lot of things upfront. That's a lot of asking a lot of people uh, to invest their time in. But if you just say, okay, just give us your email and password, baki baad mein. Required fields come crazy, for instance. Now they're more likely to do it. And then later on, you can remind them, hey, do you want to add a picture? Or do you want to add this? And things like that. I think if you I like log in, mein, like uh, connect with Google or connect with Facebook, your option. Jo hai. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's uh, also an example of reducing friction, like we talked about last night. Uh, Slack does this a lot. It's not going to bombard you with, look what we can do. It asks you to do the essentials. And then over the next few days, as you start using it more, it pops up and says, hey, did you know you can also do this and you can do that? And why don't you you know, add this or that? Uh, <laughs> terrorist organizations use escalation of commitment. Absolutely. Uh, what a dark example, but uh, it's a relevant example, Shahzadeh. Uh, you only want them to do one tiny thing, just come and hang out with us for an hour. And then, uh, you know, it starts from there. And then the last thing is cognitive dissonance, which is a word for saying that when you have two competing thoughts or beliefs, two inconsistent thoughts, uh, you try to resolve them by changing the perception of one of those thoughts. Um, as an example, this keyboard is an example. I got this keyboard thinking it was a great keyboard. Um, and then I realized, well, it's not so great because it dies down uh, for no reason. It's uh, The issue was the battery, by the way, which now it's telling me is a whole 20%, uh, but then it dies, which is bad feedback, by the way, because it's not telling me like accurately what's happening. Um, so if I maybe let's say I spent, I don't know, $300 on this keyboard and now I find out it's a craft keyboard, uh, I'm likely to change my perception of the keyboard by saying, oh, maybe it's just me who doesn't know how to use it because Baki started to use Kare and things like that. Um, and so when it comes to products, you know, once you're into it, once you've invested your time in a product and you want to leave it, um, it's harder for you to do because now you're thinking to yourself, well, if I wanted to quit Instagram, why would I spend so much time in building my following and, and my feed there? Um, similarly with Snapchat, uh, when you have snap streaks, that's a huge investment of your time. Uh, each streak number um, is representing 24 hours that you put into or a single day that you put into maintaining that streak. And so now, even if you want to break that streak, uh, it's hard for you to do because one, you built that streak yourself, the IKEA effect. Two, you want to be consistent with past behavior. You have been doing this for, what is it, 1500 days. So 1501st day. And three, uh, cognitive dissonance in that, if I'm breaking this streak now, why did I invest so much time in it? And um, 
all of these three things combine to sort of increase your investment in that product. Uh, and what an investment does, I remember this, this is a hook model and the model says that, you know, it's a circular thing. What it does is that it loads the next trigger. So as a reminder, we started with triggers, which can be internal and external that tell you what to do. Then depending on how your motivation, uh, ability and opportunity is like, you, you make a decision on whether or not to act on that trigger. If you act on that trigger and you get a reward, you are likely to do that action more often. If it's a variable reward, even more often. And then lastly, if you're doing this over and over again, you're investing in that product. You're investing because um, you're doing that action uh, again and again. You're building towards uh, you know, being in that product for longer. And then that acts as a trigger for your next action. So a snap streak again, um, you'll get a notification saying that your snap streak is ending. There's a hourglass going, you know, tick tock, tick tock. Do you want to do this? That investment in that snap streak is acting as an, a trigger for you to do the action again, which is to send another snap. So when this model is com complete, there doesn't need to be an external trigger anymore because the fear of losing the investment that you made is acting as an internal trigger for you to do the action again, get the reward again, increase your investment. And that increase in investment again, increases the internal trigger potency for you to do the action again. So uh, that's how you're basically stuck in that loop, uh, which is the hook model. And that's uh, pretty much the thesis of that entire book. Uh, I've sort of tried to cut out the bullshit, as I said, uh, there's a lot of it in it, uh, but I've distilled it down to uh, the essentials. Um, and uh, here I would like to have Ali take over with a couple of very good questions that he had. Um, I also have a question of my own, uh, but Ali, uh, go ahead. You do one, then I'll do one, and then you do the other. Okay, so this is an open question for anyone who wants to answer. So if you had to stop using your most frequent use, frequently used app, would you be able to do it? If not, why not? I think first you have to think about what your most frequently used app is because I don't know, is it WhatsApp? Is it Instagram? They're all like, kind of like occupying the same space, which is you all, you open those all in a row at the same time. Um, FOMO and okay. too many groups. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about groups, Ikra. Uh, <laughs> different psychology with like talking to groups versus talking to individuals is more pressure to respond, I think. Uh, what if instead of stop stopping use stop using that app you had to switch to another identical app with better features would you able would you be able to do it so again i think the point you're getting to is investing in that app right um yeah and the funny thing about 
how powerful uh, the escalation of commitment is that even if there is a better app that is available for free, no cost, better features, you're still not going to use it because it's not that invest currently ahead though. Uh, okay, like, what's the point of changing if chats get transferred somehow? <laughs> uh, if you've ever tried to switch from iPhone to Android or Android to iPhone uh, with WhatsApp, it's it's terrible experience. Um, there's, I think there's paid software to do that, and then even that doesn't do the job uh, properly. Um, here's the thing. Um, People in the chat are saying, Agar ye ho Agar ye ho I don't think what you say is indicative of your behavior. I could give all these tools to you right now. Here's a better app. Yes, you can transfer messages. Do it. I don't think people will do it because that's how our minds work. There's, we don't think rationally. And what we say we'll do is not what we actually end up doing. Um, I have a question of my own, and this is more of a philosophical question. I'd love to hear uh, what people have to say now and later on, which is that um, we talked about rewards and social rewards and how when you post something, you get some sort of social feedback that says, um, you know, what you did or said is good or bad. If you have angry people on Twitter, uh, you know, raging at you, okay, how dare you say this thing, then you get negative feedback. And if you get likes and retweets and everything, then you get positive feedback. My question is, can we exist in a vacuum without feedback or without social feedback? Um, can we post something just because we want to post something? Can we post when we have zero followers, when we know nobody is going to see this? ever. Uh, I suppose when you write diaries, that's one way to do it. Uh, but what if you made accounts that had zero followers and you're just doing it because you want to do it? Um, or you're sharing things, but nobody is there to comment or give you that uh, feedback or that validation that what you said or did was good or bad. Because what that implies is that you have to come up with an original thought and you have no way of knowing whether or not that thought is validated because nobody's there to tell you that. Uh, there's a philosophical saying, if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, did it really happen? Did it really fall? Does it make a sound? I think that's so, yeah. Does it make a sound? So if a tree, fall, I'll repeat, if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? So if you post something online and nobody is around to look at it, does it matter what you think or what you said or what you did? And then how does that impact your behavior? Do you do more of that behavior? Do you do less of that behavior? There's no positive or negative feedback here. So how do you know what you want to do if there's no feedback? Or have you tried doing that? I'm, I'm speaking a lot. I would like to hear someone else speak on that as well. I'm also reading the chat. Uh, let's see, Ellie, you can speak if you want. I'm reading the chat. So I have actually tried that. I made a Twitter account just to mm -hmm. win and write my thoughts and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I think I used it for a week or so before I actually left it because there was no feedback. No one was actually listening. Mm -hmm. So I was like, there's no point to this. <laughs> so I actually left it and just started using my main Twitter account to use to do that. Uh, Essen said that there's only for my eyes snap memories. Um, in, but even with like features like those, two things. One, they're built into what you're already using and what you're already used to getting feedback with. So with Ali and Twitter, you have a regular account, you're getting feedback. And the reason why you're doing something separate with a different account is what would happen if there was no feedback? And then you find out, well, that sucks. Nothing really happens. So you go back to the, the thing you were using before. It's still built into Twitter. It's still built into Snapchat, um, but you see how these apps are more likely to be addictive compared to I don't, a, a notes app or a reminders app because there's no feedback built into it. There never will be. Uh, and it is indeed only for your eyes and there's no alternative to getting social feedback there. Um, interesting product idea, by the way, just occurred to me. What if you made a social to-do list where people can see publicly where you are with what you have to do and uh, how much you're slacking. And so that adds more, like they give you negative feedback if you're behind on your deadlines and positive feedback if you complete them. Uh, app idea, write it down. Uh, the other thing with that, uh, only for my eyes worry thing is that even if you write diaries or journals, I think uh, there's a little part of us that sort of fantasizes about what would happen if someone read it or maybe you actually do want someone to read it but you never will give that diary or journal to someone um, even as we're writing those things we're having an imaginary conversation with a person that is giving us certain feedback um, in our head like we are giving ourselves the feedback that we want uh, taking pictures yourself and hiding them in your gallery, Visma says. How invested are you in those pictures compared to the ones that you share? I have a ton of pictures. I don't share a lot. I have like four posts on Instagram for like from five years ago. Uh, I haven't posted on Facebook for a similar amount of time, but I have a lot of pictures. I take a lot of pictures. I don't put them anywhere. Uh, I think that those pictures that are only for my eyes have, they, they do have some value to me, but not as much as those in which I am with other people and those with which I can share with other people. So if I take a picture of my desk, that's just like, oh, my desk is looking neat and clean today. I'll save this picture. But if I have a picture with other people, maybe you know, with a few of my friends, and I share that picture with friends, you're more likely to be invested in those pictures. And those are the types of pictures that you see more often on social media because you are guaranteed to get that social validation from the other people in those pictures. Um, like the, it does exist, huh? Uh, a picture of yourself on a field good day when you're hyping yourself up. Can you elaborate on the, I've never done that. I know uh, I don't know how a picture helps in hyping you up. So I'm very curious, genuinely curious to know. No, say like just when you're having a good day, like, you know, like some days where your hair just looks good. 
So you're like, oh, cool. Okay. So like, if you just like take a lot of pictures of that, then you can go back and look at it yourself. Like it won't be like a social thing, but just for your own, to feel happy for your own self, I guess. Okay. So you can appreciate why I don't get it because one, I don't have good days and two, I don't have hair. So, uh, it's, uh, I often like, I'd love to ask people why they posted a certain picture. Every picture posted has a story behind it, I think. Uh, and yet you are the star of that story. But when you're scrolling through Instagram, you're not thinking, uh, that much about why this person posted that picture. Maybe you are, Essen. Uh, I just wanted to add that. So like the absolute vacuum you're talking about, I don't think it exists. Like even when you're sending a tweet to your drafts or like you're archiving an Instagram picture, it's because, you know, probably that tweet was too controversial or that picture didn't quite make the cut. So hmm. even then you're judging your content, like, from the like orienting yourself from the point of view of your audience, right? So even when this must taking pictures of herself, part of it is next picture maybe I can use this. Or like, you know, the kind of investment, it's not really that um, static, I would say. And we definitely don't want to live in an isolated kind of like it's it's an, it's really not social media then. It's like it defeats the purpose. I think uh, you're sort of giving yourself that feedback, the expected feedback that you would get by posting this picture. Uh, and you're learning that again with operant conditioning. Okay, okay. If I post this picture in the past, when I posted such and such picture, I got a good response. And if I post this controversial tweet, I got a bad response. Therefore, in future, when I have that tweet ready to go, I'll think twice about what that response might be. And in my head, I've already gotten that negative response. So I relegated to the drafts. Um, and that feedback has been built up over time. Like nobody has physically given you that feedback, but it's something that you've learned over time. Um, and also there's different rules on social media that sort of just develop spontaneously. So something that works well on Instagram might not work as well on uh, Twitter. Why? Because the medium is the message. There is a, There it is again. I'll try to repeat that once every week. Um, and the reason for that is the audience, the same audience on Facebook will give a different response on that plat platform compared to the same audience on Instagram. So the product itself, the social norms around it, for instance, uh, if you post a very controversial tweet on religion, on Twitter, people are much more open to debate and engaging in it and, uh, you know, talking about it. But if you post something like that on Instagram, you know, there is only one option, which is to heart it and the comments get buried. You can't have conversations uh, in Instagram comments as much. And so people pay less attention to that. Um, also because the surrounding content is so positive on Instagram, always positive all the time. Um, and then, uh, uh, do let's see what, uh, memories serve as a nostalgia is a very, uh, potent trigger. Instagram <laughs> comments are worse. Uh, the ones on, uh, what the 
Say that for me. Is it R in the middle? Uh, yes. And is it a G or a G? It's a G with a G. Right. You can tell how much I'm into pop culture by if you like, I don't know any Pakistani actors, actresses, celebrities, uh, because I try to shut down as many uh, sources of so-called like news or stimulation. Not even for well, those actors I know not because I've watched movies or listened to their songs, just because they're everywhere. Um, but yeah. I, I think I lost, oh yeah, the original point I was making, the comments on the Artagul ladies Instagram, uh, which made the news. Um, Menor said that the Instagram comments are worse. I, I suspect if she was on Twitter and posted that the response would be even worse. Uh, yes, Esra Bilgich, Bilgich, Bilgik, Bilgich, Bilgik. I think Turkish names. That's a better way to do it, Esra Baji. Um, okay, we shall end here. Um, 7.23. Next week, I will send you a much shorter reading. About eight pages should take you 10, 12 minutes to do it. I'll send it to you tomorrow. Uh, it would just be very annoying for you to receive it now at the end of the class. So uh, we shall have Bisma be hosting that one. And uh, that session will be much more discussion oriented. I want that session to serve as a checkpoint for being done with habits and uh, persuasive behavior and design. So we'll have like maybe a 15, 20 minute lecture and the rest of that class is going to be discussion. Uh, so be prepared for that. I would like to not speak as much as I've spoken uh, in this class. So, uh, Fair warning, be ready to speak. Okay, then. I shall see you in two days' time. Bye-bye.